We imagine a future. And our imaginings horrify us. They won't fear it. Until they understand it. And they won't understand it. Until they've used it. Theory will take you only so far. a weekly discussion of film, television, and pop culture. My name is Jeff Zhang, and tonight I'm joined by... Derek Wong. So, Amir is on holiday in Japan for a couple weeks, so it's just the two of us. But just because we're down a man doesn't mean we don't have exciting things to talk about, right? Kind of bummed that he's missing out on this, because it's the biggest weekend for movies, slash week for movies, maybe ever? Or at least for a very, very long time. Yeah, this is akin to, like, what, Avengers Endgame. It seems weirdly way too big for what it should be. (laughs) Well, I feel like it feels better than Avengers Endgame, because that was one superhero movie. Mm -hmm. And here, you know, this week we have, I guess, part one of our Barbenheimer extravaganza, (laughs) (laughs) in which we discuss the phenomenon that has brought everyone from every walk of life back into the movie theaters and we will also be discussing half of the barbenheimer feature itself this week with christopher nolan's oppenheimer yeah i mean let's talk a little bit about this phenomenon first it is just wild yes i've been to both movies and just to preface i love both movies and the theater was absolutely packed for both. I have never seen anything like this in like the last, I want to say decade, Mm -hmm. maybe like since the pandemic, but I feel like I haven't even seen this since before the pandemic, even before then, where it's just so many people so excited to come to the movies for these two auteur-driven films, you know, Greta Gerwig, Christopher Nolan. Mm Mm-hmm. It surprised me a lot. Yeah. Pleasant surprise. Yes, pleasant surprise. Very pleasant surprise. This is a meme, and we've seen memes before. They're not successful. Just because something is viral on the internet (laughs) and, like, people are making fun and, like, doing fun things does not translate into box office. It does not translate into butts into seats, right? Let's remind everybody about Morbin time, right? It's Morbin time, exactly. (laughs) Everyone's like, oh, we're gonna fucking do It's Morbin time and just promote the shit out of Morbius ironically. And hopefully 
people go see the movie and then Sony was like, oh shit, this meme is taking off. We're going to re-release the movie. People are actually going to come and see it. Nothing. Crickets. It fucking flopped twice. That's how bad it was. <laughs> and you remember the Minions movie? People had like the gentle yep. Minions meme where yep. people dressed mm-hmm. up to go to the movies. Like you had a fun little couple of TikToks and things like that. People dressing up and like going down the escalators, like ironically to go see the Minions movie. I don't even know if there was a bump there. The Minions movie did well. I think it was always going to do well. But this Barbenheimer phenomenon is something else entirely because people are coming to see both of these movies. And it has completely fucked our box office wager yeah. from a couple of weeks back. <laughs> I think we put both of these movies maybe too low. Yeah, too uh, low. And because all, that's all what I thought list. it was going to be, because the meme is just ironic, you know? Like, oh, yeah. it's fun to compare and contrast these two completely different movies with each other. The memes are funny, but, like, is it actually going to translate to box office results? And I guess the answer is yes, because people are showing up. And it's just that it's two good movies from two good directors, and people have been itching for a reason to go see these movies and we're not pitting the two movies against each other which is also something that's really nice to see like a rising tide lifts all boats right Mm -hmm. this whole thing with christopher nolan versus wb thinking like oh the movies are gonna be pitted against each other and barbie's clearly gonna outdo oppenheimer or whatever but that's definitely not what's happening right because everyone's coming to see both of these movies and it's just killing it so Barbie opened with a stunning 150 for the opening weekend, and then Oppenheimer's opening the 80 plus. And this is the first time in history it's insane. that two movies have opened above 80 at the same time, ever. Isn't that ridiculous? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of talks about, you know, when they both announced this as their premiere date. It was like, who's gonna blink first, right? Who's gonna leave this date? Because there's no way that these two tentpole movies are going Uh to be able to stay in the same weekend, right? And succeed. Like, one would have to falter in order for the other to succeed. And what we saw this weekend is that this is an anomaly. This is not true. If anything, it actually might have helped both of these movies. Yeah. You know, I have an anecdote. You know, when we talk about our theater going experience, I have an anecdote to tell that I mm-hmm. think that maybe could potentially represent that. I found that quite fascinating going to the theaters this weekend. I think you're right. I brought up Avengers Endgame because, you know, you asked the question, when's the last time we've seen the theater like this? In terms of numbers, in terms of like how many people I actually saw at the theater, the last movie I kind of remember being this big was Avengers Endgame. Like everyone was in the theaters. Every showing was probably packed. And that's what this felt like. But you're right that there maybe is no comparison because we've never had two movies this big going head to head. You know, there's always someone that just says, okay, I'll shift a week or two, right, to just Mm -hmm. avoid the other. And it is just so fascinating to see that both these movies have just found their audiences, but also the same audience yeah 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 so many people doing the double feature Mm -hmm. i do want to say probably a bad idea i don't think (laughs) you should be watching these movies back to back in either configuration i think seeing oppenheimer and then barbie is considerably worse than the other way around Uh, i don't think you want to be seeing the three-hour oppenheimer and be ruminating about the things it's trying to talk about while you're going into the more lighthearted barbie i think that's a bad Uh, idea i kind of disagree 
I kind of disagree. Interesting. Okay, so I didn't plan this because it just happened. I was going to watch these a day at a part. I had made a choice. I wanted to watch Barbie first. The next day, I was going to then watch Oppenheimer. And I went on a Friday night to go watch Barbie, and the theater was just crazy. You guys have heard me the last couple of years talk about my theater experiences, and they're usually not, right? You know, Jeff, you ask, like, how many people are at your theater? And I'll be like, nah, there's like 10 people, like 15 people max, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. You're not in, like, a major metropolis, no, right? You're just, yeah. I'm not. So I'm a small little college town. It's mm-hmm. summer break, so students are not here, or at least a majority of students are not here. And it was just kind of crazy that the theater was packed. I've never seen this many people at the theater. I've never seen the line for the tickets go out the door. So I quickly turned around. I'll just watch it tomorrow. And so I did actually watch Barbie and Oppenheimer on the same day. I watched Barbie in the morning. I took like a little break, went to have lunch, and then I came back and watched Oppenheimer. And I kind of wish I did it the other way around. I kind of wish I left my theater experience with a more lighthearted movie. Do you know what I mean? Okay, I can see that rationale. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. It is heavy. You know, you might be going into Barbie with all these thoughts. Leaving the theater in higher spirits. Yes, exactly. Like having more fun, having that kind of energy that was with Mm. Barbie that I think I kind of wish I had that. I wish I kind of switched them. I think it hurts your Barbie experience, though. If you're watching Oppenheimer first, you're just feeling like shit going into Barbie, you know? (laughs) I guess I'll never know. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Unless you want to do it the other way around and just see, you know? Yeah, maybe next week and I'll watch both of them again and I'll switch it. (laughs) (laughs) But you bring up Avengers Endgame and... You know, in some regards, something like No Way Home during the pandemic, right? Spider-Man No Way Home. Yeah, yeah, that was a lot of people. Yeah, what? Even then, going to the theater, I was like, oh, it's pretty busy. People are showing up to these movies and it's pretty packed. Both of these were like, you could not walk through the hallway without being elbow to elbow with someone else. It Mm -hmm. was Mm -hmm. legitimately packed to the gills with people, both times in the theater. And people just going to see both these movies, you know? And I guess... I'm in New York City, so, like, AMC Empire, the one at Times Square, is the biggest theater, so pretty obvious that it's going to be packed. But I saw Oppenheimer twice. The first time I went to see it was in the 70mm IMAX, one of the 30 in the country. Did you see that in IMAX? No, I didn't get to. I did not get to. Yeah. I wish I could have, but I did not get to. It is unbelievable in IMAX. Yeah. Yeah, packed both times. So quite an experience going to the movies. I had a pretty interesting experience also. You know, I parked my car to watch Oppenheimer. As I'm walking to the theater, I am following a group of women all in pink. One, I'm pretty sure is wearing a blonde wig. And I'm like, okay, absolutely. Yeah, this is great. You know, they're here to watch Barbie. I'm here to watch Oppenheimer. Let's go, right? This is going to be a great weekend for both these movies. And they show their tickets. They walk straight into my Oppenheimer screening. (laughs) Kind of blew me away. And that it was not the only group all in pink that I saw walk into my Oppenheimer screening. Either they are there showing their support for this movie and kind of maybe a little ironically wearing the attire. Or they were doing the double feature. You know, maybe they had already watched barbie or maybe they're gonna watch barbie after it Mm -hmm. i don't know i didn't ask but man that was one of the most memorable things about watching this movie for me 
But also, you know, when I actually sat down, there was a lot of older folks also in my theater. So that was kind of my audience, right? I imagine you had a good time, right? It sounds like you had a lot of people in there. Probably the energy was high for either of these movies that you watched. So I'm assuming your theater experience was good? Yeah, they were both good. They were both quite good. Barbie crowd was rowdy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Oppenheimer, both times dead silent. And I think I understand why it's like that. It's a very heavy dense movie it's very serious and you know there are long stretches of silence in that movie when big things are going down i won't talk about them quite yet but i will say that there are definitely people who fell asleep during the oppenheimer screenings (laughs) because wow it's three hours (laughs) when it's silent you can definitely hear people snoring i'll just say that (laughs) (laughs) that's funny that is funny. yeah it's really funny great time at the movies for both so yeah but this week we're gonna be talking about oppenheimer first christopher nolan's oppenheimer so should we talk a little bit about nolan for a bit i believe this is the second christopher nolan movie we've covered on the podcast we've talked about tenet during the pandemic and we've talked in depth about what we think about christopher nolan and his movies but we can do it again it's been a couple years So, what are your thoughts about Christopher Nolan? Do you want to do a ranking of his movies? And then we can get into Oppenheimer itself. Yeah, yeah. I think I've said this last time. I'm a fan of Nolan's movies. They are probably some of my favorite movies of all time. I love his interiority and character work, but also catering to this bigger box office mentality that I think a lot of movies need now sometimes to succeed and i think he strikes a really good balance i think about movies like inception i think about movies like the prestige i think about all the dark knight movies interstellar dunkirk they're all Mm -hmm. great story and character driven movies but also have really great action or set pieces that really draw you into a movie and I also like that he really focuses on sci-fi a lot. His love of playing with like time and space. Again, thinking about movies like Inception, Interstellar, Tenet. I appreciate his big swings. His big swings, but his respect for that genre. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like it's not froofy or like campy. He's taking that genre and I think elevating it Mm. in his way. What do you think about Nolan? I generally like Christopher Nolan a lot. I would say I'm more... Nolan agnostic than most fans of Christopher Nolan. I understand a lot of what people criticize him for. You know, he's a little emotionally chilly. He's very calculated and deliberate with his exposition. And it gives his movies a little remove where you want to be a little more close to the subject. It's just kind of hard to bridge that gap sometimes. When he hits, he really hits. But when he misses, I feel like there's also a bunch of misses there that I'm not super fond of. I know Tenet has become a huge vibe movie, and a lot of people are huge fans of Tenet. I rewatched it recently, and I still can't get on board with Tenet. <laughs> it's just too... I can't. It's... I'm sorry. I still love the movie. <laughs> like, I know like, when I, we movie? talked about I still do love the movie. It's just nowhere near as smart as it pretends to be. And I know people are like, oh, it's just a vibe. You got to go with it. But that vibe is boring, man. I'm sorry. I don't really oh, like the movie. Damn. Other movies that really hit for me, The Prestige, I fucking yep. really love. Obviously, The Dark Knight, Inception, I really love too. Yeah, Memento. He's got a great filmography. I'm just 
a little cooler on some things than a lot of other people are. And I mean, he has plenty of movies. And I don't think we need to rank all his movies. But do you have no. like a top three, top five, eh, top three, top three before Oppenheimer? Or what? yeah, how about before? <laughs> yeah, let's do before, and then let's see if it slots in, right? Okay. Do you have a top three? All right. Yeah, I have a top three. Yeah. Okay. I have a top three. So top three easily: The Prestige, Dunkirk. And The Dark Knight, I think. Before Oppenheimer. Okay. Yeah, for me, I think for me, it's absolutely number one is The Prestige. Hell yeah. Love that movie. I love The Prestige. And then, you know, somewhere in there, I don't know if it's two or three right now, but The Dark Knight is definitely in there. But then I just rewatched this. It's kind of slipping in there, man. Interstellar. I have found my love for this movie now. (laughs) I remember when I first watched this movie, I was not in love with it. And I thought it was a little too funny talking about Oppenheimer, too theory, a little too like out there. But then now rewatched it and I'm like, damn, I don't know what I was not seeing earlier and how much I really do love this movie. All right. I might have to revisit because I think I was on your original wavelength with Interstellar. Yeah. I think the extra-dimensional love bookcase is just a little too much for me. Mm. I think it's just a little too silly. But I haven't seen that movie in years. I haven't seen it in years. So I do want to revisit and see if it hits any differently. But I guess for you, it has. So It's interesting. You have Dunkirk as one of your threes. I think I liked Dunkirk. Mm. It's just I think the time stuff didn't work for me. The way he uses time in that movie, I don't think is as successful it's not as elegant as some yeah. of the other ones, I would say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it's neat, and I think it's probably the weakest part of the movie. But other things yeah. in that movie really hit for me. All right. Well, let's get into Oppenheimer. Yeah. So, should I just come out and say it? It's my favorite Nolan movie. Oh, what is it pushing out then? The Prestige. Just pushing out The Prestige? Come on. Yeah, dude. <laughs> I love The Prestige. <laughs> that hasn't changed. I still love The Prestige. I fucking love yeah, The yeah. Prestige. The dueling yes. magicians, the hubris, the structure of the movie and the way it pulls the rug from under you. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal. But Oppenheimer is just operating on a completely different level where I think it's addressing a lot of the flaws that people perceive Christopher Nolan to have. I think it's his most emotionally mature movie and textured movie, for sure. Every single movie that plays with time that he has, it's a little finicky and manufactured and calculated, I think. But here, it is so elegant and well done that it hit for me right away. The performances in this movie, everything about this movie is just phenomenal i fucking loved oppenheimer it's so so good so i love love nolan but i have to say i don't love this movie i'm kind of on the opposite end jeff i think structurally it doesn't work for me i think there are problems the same problems that i think people have seen with nolan i think are still kind of evident here dude no way (laughs) It hasn't bothered me in the past, but I think it's still there and it doesn't really bother me per se. It's just I still see them. And also, I think that the use of time, I think his use of time doesn't serve this movie the way he wanted it to. Oh, opposite. Opposite. (laughs) I know. I guess we're going to have a discussion. But I do agree. I think the performances are great specifically from Killian Murphy uh, side of things. And I think Robert Downey Jr. is great too. I will say that 
not to spoil anything, I think this is a movie of two halves, right? Can you agree with that? Uh, you mean two thirds and a third? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You could say it's two thirds and a third. And I think I like the last third a lot more than I liked the first two thirds of this movie. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I would assume that you didn't like the last third, but I guess it's strangely it's the last third that I really like. I don't think either part works without the other, and I think the last third is yeah, okay, absolutely crucial to the movie and crucial to my understanding and enjoyment of the movie too. The last third, okay, yeah. I'm yeah. assuming you feel similarly because you like the last third. Yes, I like the last third. I don't necessarily disagree with that. You do need the first two thirds for the last third to work. I just don't think I needed so much of the first two thirds. And I kind of wish that the ratio was almost switched. The build up to what would become the last third of this could have been shorter. While what happens at the last third, I thought could have gone on for much longer. And I would have loved to see more of that. Okay. I don't agree with that, but... <laughs> it's so hard to, like, go into this without going to spoilers. So I think we've given our general thoughts. Do we need to give a synopsis? I guess we kind of do. It's history, too, right? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, I mean, basically, this is a biopic. I mean, I want to say people are making comparisons to other, quote-unquote, great man biopics, you know? But this is mm-hmm. probably, like, an antithesis of that, where it really goes into the contradictions within the person that it's portraying. So basically, this movie is about J. Robert Oppenheimer. He was the pioneering physicist dubbed the father of the atomic bomb. This is about the creation of the atomic bomb in Los Alamos in the Manhattan Project. And it covers a buildup to the Trinity test, testing the atomic bomb that they're going to drop on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II in 1945. It's about Oppenheimer and his leading of the project, you know, it's about his politics, and then the aftermath of the bomb, his change in stance into anti-proliferation of nuclear weapons, how there was a McCarthyist witch hunt against him. There's a lot in this movie. It's trying to do a lot. And, you know, it's based on the book. It's called American Prometheus by this writer named Kai Bird. That book is 900 pages, and Mm. this movie actually does a very good job of consolidating an absolute like doorstop of a book into <laughs> a three hour movie. Huge ensemble cast, giant, giant fucking cast. So you've got yes. Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Florence Pugh, people that you didn't even expect to see, Benny Safdie, Josh Hartnett, Casey Affleck, Rami Malek, Kenneth Branagh. Jason Clark, David Desmalchian, insane cast. Alden Ehrenreich, Tony Goldwyn, yeah. so many people in this movie. Stack cast, huge ensemble here. And, you know, basically it takes the life of J. Robert Oppenheimer from his college years all the way until retirement. A deconstruction of the great man biopic, I would say. Yeah. Okay, so this movie basically, Christopher Nolan has very iffy handle on politics sometimes. He's very ideologically confused in a lot of his movies, kind of a wishy-washy centrist when it comes to the politics of his movies. And this is the first time in his entire filmography where I think he comes down on one side or the other definitively about where the movie's politics lies. And I think a lot of people might have been expecting, you know, 
oh, this movie is probably going to play both sides of the coin. That dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, one of the worst war crimes ever committed, but also it was probably necessary to win the war. There's that duality here that, you know, historians have debated forever. But Christopher Nolan definitively comes down on one side. Uh, okay, how did you read it then? Like, I might not read it that way, but okay. How did you, you don't read it this way? This movie is a thousand percent anti-bomb. There is no part of this movie that painted dropping the atomic bomb as a good thing and developing this horrific weapon as something that humanity needed to do. It a thousand percent came down on the side of being anti-bomb. A lot of people thought that it would kind of split the difference, but it definitely does not. Probably it's the way I read the movie. For me, I didn't read the movie as, is the bomb a bad thing or not? The bomb is a bad thing. And I don't think that's what he's questioning. I think it's trying to recontextualize who Oppenheimer was. And like, was him being pushed aside during the McCarthy era the right thing was his oh absolutely okay all right so i feel like you view the movie the same way as i do because it's about the contradictions within oppenheimer himself and Mm -hmm. it's not about whether the bomb was a good thing or not right because the bomb was clearly a bad thing and Mm -hmm. there's no two ways about it it was a fucking war crime Mm -hmm. but it is about oppenheimer's own coming to terms with his anti-proliferation after dropping the bomb or even lack thereof One of the things the movie does is it does portray him as a coward, and his lack of conviction is a huge running thread in the film. And, you know, it's about this vast gulf between science and empathy and theory versus practice, right? I think that's what this movie is about. And Oppenheimer, throughout this whole movie, there's this thread of him being short-sighted and, you know, focusing on the science and not realizing the consequences of his actions until... It's too late. It's too late. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we're on the same page. I got a little worried yeah. for a second, but I think no, we're on no, the same no, page. No, 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 no. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to mislead you. I just think that you're kind of going down this path of like, is the bomb bad? I'm like, I don't know if it was really questioning the bomb. I think it was questioning the man. For sure. Right, right, right. Okay, so I think we have to talk about the structure of this movie to then kind of talk about the specifics, right? The first two thirds in this movie is really like about the setup for that Trinity test, right? Akin to like a heist moment, gathering all the scientists and, you know, trying to figure out the fusion and the fission. Getting the gang together. Getting the gang together and then pulling off the testing of the bomb Mm -hmm. to know if it will actually happen, right? It really culminates to the test, right? And where we see him actually blow up a bomb. Yeah. There is no CG, right? This is all captured in camera. So like he actually blew up a giant ass bomb. Yes. So no actual fizzle material, obviously, no radiation, Mm -hmm. but it was a giant bomb that Christopher Nolan detonated to capture the Trinity test. And the movie's not really about the explosion, but Christopher Nolan still knows how to pull off the big spectacle, because that is the one piece of spectacle still within this movie. It is probably his least action-heavy movie ever. Someone came out of the movie and was like, I was expecting something like Inception or The Dark Knight, but this is not what I got. I was really disappointed. I'm like, I don't know what you're expecting going into this movie. You know, going into Dunkirk, that's like the other side of the theater of war, right? That's actually in the thick of combat. And, you know, you have nail-biting rescues and naval and aerial battles. But here, it's just talking heads mostly, and then geopolitical maneuverings. Your one moment of spectacle is the Trinity test. 
And he does not skimp on that at all. The actual experience of watching the Trinity test. A lot of people came out of the theater and they're like, I didn't know that's how explosions worked. Where (laughs) you see the flames and everything and then the sound hits you later. I'm like, obviously that's how that shit works. But that is quite a cinematic experience where it's just dead silent when the bomb detonates and everyone's just holding their breath and waiting for the shockwave to hit them. He captured that perfectly. I mean, I did not see it in 70, so, like, I kind of wish I did. I saw it in a regular laser projection, too. Yeah, shockwave, when you finally hear the sound hit the theater, I thought that was pretty great. I thought it was going to turn into a horror movie when, like, Teller's talking about, like, Jack Quaid's character, and he's like, what's going to protect you from the glass? I thought, seriously, like, the glass is going to blow out and, like, I'm going to get glass in that guy's face. (laughs) I mean, that didn't happen, but I thought, I was like, damn, is this going to turn really dark right now? (laughs) New meme image of Benny Safdie putting the lotion on his face and the goggles on. I thought that was really funny. Which, we haven't talked about him too much either. Like, I thought Benny Safdie was great. He was so good. He was so good as Teller. I know he's a great director. I love his movies. I love Good Time. I love... Oh, my God. What's the one with Adam Sandler? Jesus. Uh, Uncut Gems. Uncut Gems. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're great directors, but then him showing up lately in movies, and especially this role, like, could definitely use some more Benny Safdie yeah. in the movies. Licorice Pizza. Yeah. He's good mm-hmm. in that, too. Yeah. So, when the bomb was going off, it was dead silent. Mm-hmm. You could hear, like, one guy in the theater. He's like... <sighs> <laughs> so fucking funny. It was hilarious. <laughs> Just slept through an atom bomb. That was so <sighs> fucking funny. Movies are dark. Sometimes they're quiet. Don't fall asleep. <laughs> it's a good place to take a nap, I guess. <laughs> or do fall asleep, I guess. Or do fall asleep. Yeah, know. whatever. You got your money already anyway. Whatever. The last third of this movie kind of turns into like a courtroom drama. Mm-hmm. He's being interrogated by the U.S. government and then it's also the appointment hearing for Robert Downey Jr.'s... Louis Strauss. Louis Strauss character, right? Their stories are intertwined so that, ostensibly, he's on trial kind of the same as for the Robert Downey Jr. character, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I found that way more fascinating. I think the political drama of it all and weaving the narrative around these two individuals at odds was really fascinating to me and something that I really wasn't expecting from Nolan. And I thought he did quite well. I really, really liked The Last Third. And I think to maybe take from that audience member you heard, The Bomb, that's the only big spectacle in this movie. The first two thirds builds up so much to that that I don't think I needed it. I don't think that what we saw was justified by how much story we had to dedicate to just the bomb. Oh, I don't agree. But I am pleasantly surprised that you love the last third of the movie because Mm -hmm. the last third of the movie absolutely makes this story, I think. Mm -hmm. And I would rather you dislike the first two thirds than (laughs) dislike the last third. Because I think a lot of people are going to bristle against the last third of this movie. Because Mm -hmm. getting to the Trinity test, that's the first two thirds of the movie. And there's still an hour left after that. Yeah. With the hearings and this whole Strauss versus Oppenheimer kangaroo court. That is the best part of the movie, actually. So I don't technically disagree with you that the last third is very very strong but i also love the first two-thirds of this movie probably more than you do yeah Um, that's fair to say if you want an explanation of how this movie is structured it's probably putting like tenet in practice it's kind of like a temporal 
pincer move with three separate timelines, right? Because there's three separate timelines. There's the whole part where he's building the bomb and he's getting the Manhattan Project together leading up to the Trinity test. And then there is also the hearing where Oppenheimer gets his security clearance revoked Revoked, from the U.S. government. And then the third part is Robert Downey Jr.'s Louis Strauss and his confirmation hearing for Secretary of Commerce. They're all taking place at different times. But a lot of Christopher Nolan time stuff doesn't really work for me. This really hit. I thought it was very elegantly done. And a lot of it, for me, it felt like a conversation between past, present, and future for Mm. this. And a lot of it came from, you know, Jennifer Lane's editing. She did a phenomenal job editing these three different portions of the movie together. Christopher Nolan did an interview where he said that the color portion of the movie is subjective and the black and white is objective. Mm. Which, when you watch the movie, I don't think there's a way you can come to that conclusion. I don't think that's actually true. It's just the color is from Oppenheimer's perspective, and the black and white is from Strauss. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah, I don't think one is more subjective than the other. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he probably misspoke by that. One is just from the perspective of one character, and then the black and white is the perspective from the other. Yeah, that's kind of my understanding. That's kind of what I've heard. So I know, like, the time stuff works for you. I mean, that is one criticism of Nolan, right? Like, I think all of his movies have some kind of play with time, and... I just don't know if I necessarily needed it in this movie. That's the way I felt about Tenet. Mm. I feel like oh. a lot of the time shenanigans <laughs> were completely obfuscatory. He did it just to make the story more confusing when it didn't need to be. And when you pull back the layers of the temporal pincer moves and like the time travel and things moving forwards and backwards at the same time, when you take all that away and get to the core of what the movie's about, there's nothing really there. It's not that complicated. You know what I mean? Where here, Mm. it doesn't seem like artifice and like puffery, like trying to puff up the movie into something that's more complicated than it needs to be. I think it just works. I think, you know, it's past informing the present and the present informing the past. All three of them are talking to each other and painting this portrait of Oppenheimer, which I think really, really worked for me. So... You know, like, for example, at the beginning of the movie, when he's in college, he's watching, like, the raindrops and the puddles and stuff, and he's having the visions, you know? So, first of all, nothing in this movie is actually, like, a CGI shot, right? Like, the flames and then the particle detonations and, like, all the physics close-ups. He actually filmed, like, stuff in a collider to get that on IMAX. So, that's not even CGI, which I thought was really, really cool. But in the beginning of the movie, they're already mixing, like, the past and the future. When he's looking at the rain puddle and seeing the particle collisions in his head, you know, is that, like, inspiration for his budding physics career? Or is it this ominous portent of doom in creating, like, the worst weapon that mankind has ever seen? So that conversation's already there in the beginning of the movie, and I just love that. I think it's really, really fantastic. There's, like, a purpose behind it. There are moments that it does work for me, like the interstitial between his past and his present. Uh I think about the scene when he's in that, you know, interrogation room, we'll call it. They start talking about the Gene Tetlock Mm -hmm. character. They talk about their relationship. All of a sudden, she's there, like, having sex with him. It's his memory, or it's what Emily Blunt is potentially seeing, but it's also his memory. And, like, stuff like that, the interstitial between that really works. 
this merging. I don't know if I necessarily agree, like, having to cut between the three so much in this movie. Can I just say that Christopher Nolan has no idea how to film a sex scene? <laughs> he's horrible at it. I fucking adore this movie, but he's horrible at sex scenes. So one of the criticisms is that his movies are very sexless, and yes. he doesn't film sex scenes. So I feel like he went out of his way to film sex scenes in this one between Florence Pugh and Killian Murphy, and I think I liked him better when he didn't even try, because these are fucking awful. So this first sex scene between... Oppenheimer and Gene Tatlock, it doesn't even make sense. She's having sex with him, and she gets off his dick mid-coitus to go to the bookshelf to get a book. Who the fuck does that? Nobody does that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just so funny. It just seems like Christopher Nolan himself has never had sex, you know what I mean? <laughs> Minor quibble in a movie that I actually adore but i think yes. it's very very funny so what part of the first two-thirds did you not like what exactly is it about the first two-thirds of you know the build-up to the trinity test i think i've kind of mentioned it the one thing that it could have just been cut a little bit shorter the actual spectacle when you say it out loud is like crazy right to like blow up this big explosion and actually see it on screen and on film is a really cool idea but in the context of the movie, and I think me taking knowing history, there's not a suspense here, right? There's no me thinking he's going to pull one over on us. This is some alternate world history. You know, I know this succeeds. Okay, counterpoint here, though, because okay. I think the performances are so strong. And before this movie, I didn't know there was a possibility of igniting the atmosphere and just mm -hmm. actually destroying the world, right? Like, I did not know that was part of the Manhattan Project and part of Oppenheimer's work. And the performances here are so compelling that for a second, like, obviously, like you, I know that the test is successful, and I know that they dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But mm -hmm. for a split second, when they're doing the Trinity test, you kind of feel... A little bit of the trepidation. You have Josh Peck hovering over the red button of the abort button, the storm rolling in to interrupt the test, and Killian Murphy and Matt Damon's General Groves character just talking about the possibility of igniting the atmosphere. You know it's not going to happen, but for a split second, you kind of believe it. At least I did for a second, you know? Mm -hmm. That suspense is actually there. I don't think it's not there at all. I think it's something that's informed by the performances rather than you know, knowing history or not knowing history. Maybe you can't suspend your disbelief long enough to, you know, be in that moment because you know what happens. But yeah. for me, I could. I do wish that this movie combated or spoke more to the moral quandary of what they're doing. You know what I mean? We spent like two hours with these scientists that talk so much about how to do this. And it only seems like minutes before the actual test goes off is then when we start to question it, right? If it Whether should we happen. should do it. Yeah. Oh, I don't agree. I think a lot of this movie goes into, you know, the difference between theory and practice and like actually dropping the bomb and the amount of talk among the scientists or lack thereof also informs that, right? And I think the moral quandary is there, and especially after the Trinity test. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I think that there's a lot of buildup to the first two-thirds before the actual Trinity test that 
I kind of wish we saw more of that, right? We saw more of people questioning it versus it happens so much after the fact. And I think that's why I liked the last third of it because it starts to bring that into question so much. Oppenheimer questioning himself, the others questioning Oppenheimer, the science community having his back in that last third. And there Mm -hmm. are members that didn't. All that intrigue, talk about morality. And that was so fascinating to me that it seemed quite absent the first two thirds. I think that's by design. You know, you're talking about the hubris of scientists and theoretical physicists who have tunnel vision on completing a project, right? And then you have this switch all of a sudden where the Nazis are out of the equation. Germany's out of the equation. Hitler commits suicide, right? Yeah. And Mm -hmm. Germany surrendered. So Japan is the only Axis power left. And the switching of the gears to, you know, now bomb Japan is completely different. And, you know, there's that whole through line of the movie of Oppenheimer doing these things and not realizing the consequences until it's too late. It happens all the time. So in the beginning, he poisons his professor's apple. Yeah. I don't think he actually wanted to kill him, but he almost did. He just does that in the spur of the moment just because he's annoyed with him, right? And then Mm -hmm. the same thing with Gene Tatlock. He has this romance with Gene Tatlock, this extramarital affair. She's a communist and a security risk. He does not know what risks he's putting onto the Manhattan Project itself and to Gene's life. Because I don't know if you remember from her suicide scene, in one of the iterations of it, there's like a black glove holding her under the water, right? So in the Mm. book... There is this explicit suspicion that Manhattan Project intelligence agents actually had her killed because she was a security risk, where here it's a little more subtle. It goes to another thing about Nolan and his weakness of writing women, where it seemed like she killed herself because Oppenheimer wasn't there. Oppenheimer wasn't there or didn't return her affection for him. Right, Mm -hmm. like he promised. I do like that they include the vision of the glove, you know, either to represent intelligence agents killing her or his own guilt in like not knowing the consequences of his actions of having this extramarital affair with a known communist right Mm. and then Mm -hmm. finally you know talking about the bombing of japan oppenheimer and a lot of the scientists had this tunnel vision of you know we have to beat the nazis we have to beat the germans oppenheimer and a lot of these scientists were jewish so they're actually rounding us up and killing us so we need to beat them to create this horrible weapon to defeat them But when you take Germany out of the equation and only Japan's left, you know, then you're questioning, do you drop the bomb on civilians in Japan? And some of that stuff is like the most horrific stuff. Yeah. The lead up to the Trinity test when they're choosing targets for Fat Man and Little Boy, right? That stuff is horrific. I know people were laughing because, you know, that guy's like, oh, we're not going to drop it on Kyoto. My wife and I honeymoon there. That's like an uncomfortable laughter because it's kind of funny, but it's also indicative of the remove (laughs) that this bureaucracy has. They don't even view these civilians that they're going to murder as like real people. They're just, you know, talking theory. You know, again, another thing with theory versus practice. So, yeah, there's a lot of that moral quandary there. I do agree it's more present in the final third of the movie. But there's a reason that it's absent in the first two thirds. So I don't okay. hold no. that against it. I mean, you've kind of already brought it up. I think one of my gripes with this movie, and I think still with, you know, all of Nolan's movies, is Emily Blunt gets a great moment near the end of the movie. But uh-huh. I still think that 
she and Florence Pugh are just not written well enough. Uh, you might disagree, but I don't know. I still think he can't write women. I think it applies more to Florence Pugh in this case than Emily Blunt, because mm-hmm. Emily Blunt gets a lot of great moments in this movie. And, you know, the movie is overstuffed. There's a lot of stuff in this movie, and it's trying to get through it all. Unfortunately, you know, Gene Tatlock and Emily Blunt's Kitty, they do get pushed to the sidelines a lot, but... Emily Blunt does get a lot of moments to shine. Oppenheimer breaks down after Jean's suicide. She's like, get your shit together. You know? yeah, yeah, get your shit together. Yeah. You don't get to push that sin <laughs> on top of the people. Yeah. That's a mistake that you made. Pull yourself together. I thought mm-hmm. that was great. And then another line was talking to him about manning up against Strauss and his witch hunt. You know, mm-hmm. and she's like, the most vindictive people are also the most patient. And then obviously the big highlight for her is during the security hearing, where yep. she gives Jason Clark's prosecutor a run for his money. She had a great, yeah. great, great, great scene there. Nolan, I think, wants you to believe that what she does maybe, like, turns that... Because it's three people that decide, yes. right? It's like a two-to-one vote. one of the yeah. panel members onto Oppenheimer's side. Her refusal to shake Teller's hand. Yes. She yeah, has a lot of great. moments. I love that. Mm-hmm. We agree on some things, but I do definitely still disagree. Like, I don't know if she's necessarily written... As strong as some of these moments portray her to be, like, I think she has flashes of great moments in this movie. Overall, I think her character is still kind of forgotten. I think she's just there to be... The put-upon wife? Yeah, the motivator at times. She is just very secondary, right? And I guess, you know, the movie is called Oppenheimer. Mm -hmm. I still think that this is kind of the way he's right. Like, you know, I just saw Interstellar and I think Anne Hathaway is very similar. The Jessica Chastain character is very similar. They are just serving, that is to say, serving the male in the movie, right? No, that's fair. That's fair. I will take that criticism of the movie over some of the other criticisms other people have, you know, other people are like, oh, you're minimizing the casualty of the Japanese by not showing the bombing, mm. the Japanese suffering, which I don't agree with. I don't need with to see that. <laughs> at all. First yeah. of all, I don't need to see that. And it is so much more powerful to show how much the American bureaucracy does not care about the suffering of the Japanese people by not showing that deliberately. Like, just to have that remove of these pencil pushers and bureaucrats behind the button and just not giving a shit. One of the biggest highlights of the movie for me is Oppenheimer meeting with Truman, Gary Oldman's Truman, who Mm. looks nothing like Truman, but whatever. It's fine. I'll let that go. (laughs) But, you know, Oppenheimer's like, I feel like I have blood on my hands. And, you know, I think this is probably the only time that Truman's been portrayed as such, like, an outright villain. Shakes the handkerchief in his face, and then once Oppenheimer leaves, is like, I don't ever want to see that fucking crybaby ever again. Yeah. You know, where Oppenheimer's, like, actually displaying his remorse and his guilt over his role in the Manhattan Project. And how much he didn't do to stop the creation of the hydrogen bomb. A lot of this movie is just about how Oppenheimer was discarded after the success of the Trinity test and how Louis Strauss railroaded him for the sake of furthering the atomic program. Now the yeah. U.S. has a new enemy, right? The Soviet Union. It's the yeah. Cold War now. The march into bigger and better and more horrific weapons, it just never stops. Probably the best scene in the entire movie is right after the Trinity test, and Killian Murphy's got to give that speech mm. to the roaring crowd. I 
actually teared up during that scene. Just the fact that he has to say something that he doesn't believe to this roaring crowd of American patriots who are celebrating that they just murdered 200,000 people, right? And he's saying all these platitudes like, oh, we've ended the war, and I just wish we could have used the bomb on Germany, you know, things like that. But then, like, you know, the background scenery is just vibrating behind him, and, like, he just doesn't mean any of the things that he's saying. Yeah. And he's seeing, like, visions of children in the audience getting their faces melted, and when he's walking out of the gathering, he imagines putting his foot through, like, a charred corpse, and... You know, someone outside is throwing up. It's fucking unbelievable scene. What an indictment of American exceptionalism. Like, Mm -hmm. I thought that was so effective. Yeah, that was a great, great scene. Great scene. I mean, we're running a little long. I'll just say, like, one of my favorite scenes. And I think this whole movie culminates talking about these two at-odds figures, the Strauss versus the Oppenheimer. You know, Strauss throughout this whole last third is, like, accusing Oppenheimer of turning scientists against him and turning someone like Einstein against him. One of my favorite scenes is when Alden Eric writes, like, maybe did you ever think that when they met at that lake, they weren't talking about you? They were talking about something more important. And then we actually get to see the scene where, again, they talk about that kind of like moral quandary of this bomb and like what it means. That was the spot that I think hit me the strongest. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. These politicians thinking it's about them. But like in the end, it's these two scientists thinking about the world that really worked for me. So Robert Downey Jr. performance of a lifetime. He killed it as Louis Strauss, I think. I think he think did he's gonna nominate a fantastic for... job. Oh, absolutely. He's so good in this. And, you know, I feel like people don't really give him the flowers that he deserves. People are like, fuck Tony Stark. This is like his real performance. He's back. But mm-hmm. come on. Tony Stark is a iconic performance. Oh, yeah. And that thing carried the Marvel Cinematic Universe for like a whole ass decade. So let's yeah. not undercut his work as Tony Stark. But... You know, this is really this good. is the yeah. first time after that he's got like Doolittle and other things that he's done that's just not really worked out. But yeah. here they really put him in a different mode, like the snake-like Louis Strauss character that just pulls different levers for him than Tony Stark does, and it really shows like how strong he is as an actor. He's really, really good in this i already said earlier like killian murphy of it all like you know him being oppenheimer i think he deserves all the recognition too like i think i would not be surprised if robert downey jr and him both get nominated by the end of this killian murphy for best actor and then robert downey jr for best sporting so murphy's performance is quiet it's not very showy right it's very subdued Mm -hmm. But the way he captures like every contradiction and paradox within oppenheimer himself is so good you know he's like this polymath but he's bad at math he's a family man but he's a womanizer he has these leftist politics and he's like a champion of the working class but he's also extremely arrogant and hubristic he also created the worst weapon mankind has ever seen so there's all these contradictions swirling around inside him and in the end i think louis strauss does ask question of him do you think that he's anti-proliferation just to wash the blood off his hands or do you think he's actually genuine in regretting what Mm. he did and creating the bomb but the end of the movie actually reminds me a lot of the prestige with the reveal of the magic trick and the downfall of louis strauss right Mm -hmm. bringing in 
Rami Malek as the testimony that brings him down. And then yeah. all of the scientists rallying behind him. Great, great scene. And you know who doesn't get enough credit in this movie? Alden Ehrenreich. He's yes. really good. Standing toe-to-toe to Robert Downey Jr. All right. I think this movie is funny because, like, it's all these actors probably giving, like, the best performance they've had, I don't know, at least decades. You know, Rami Malek, Benny Safdie, Jason Clark, Dane DeHaan. Casey Affleck is terrifying in this. Yeah, they were Mm -hmm. all good. They were all really good. Even Josh Peck got a little scene in there as a bomb tech during the Trinity test. Olivia Thirlby as uh, Lily Hornig, the one woman Mm -hmm. on the project team. She was great, too. They're like, aren't you worried about what the radiation is going to do to your, like, reproductive organs? And she's like, mine are protected more than yours, you know? I know. Your balls are <laughs> yeah. outside your body. <laughs> this movie has, like, a lot of characters. There are a lot of great performances, but I will say that it was a little distracting. Only because oh, just probably because I famous recognized... people were in it? Yeah, yeah just okay. because I was so many people I recognized. Fair. Yeah, it started to get quite distracting. You know, especially when someone like Rami Malek is only coming in for like 10 yeah, minutes yeah, of screen yeah, time. Yeah. And then even someone like Jason Clark. For Jason a, a Clark is a little more of a chameleon than Rami yeah. Malek. Rami Malek is so recognizable, I feel. He's just got such now a unique is, yeah. look yeah. to him. I thought Josh Hartnett was great. Yeah, I love seeing some Josh Hartnett. I do love the yeah. Alden Eric Wright and the Dana Hahn. Yeah. Like, I think sometimes they don't get enough dues for how good they are in their movies. Especially uh-huh. Alden Eric Wright. I think he got a bad rap for Solo. You know what I mean? He's not the worst thing about that movie. And typically, I really like him in his movies. So I'm glad he got a good part in this one. I think this movie is vindication for Alden Ehrenreich, where... You know, people wanted to blame him for the tanking of Solo, but I yeah. feel like that was more of a marketing thing than anything else. Oh, yeah. He was good in Solo. Fuck off. Yeah, he was he's good in totally fine. Yeah. yeah, he's great yeah. on Solo. Like I said, he wasn't the problem for that movie. <laughs> I think Dane DeHaan has kind of gotten a bad rep, too. Like, I think his association yeah. with, like, The Amazing Spider-Man 2 of it all hurt his career for some of it. I think he gets a bad rap sometimes. And what was the other movie he was in with? Cara Delevingne. The, oh, um, Valerian? Yeah, Valerian. I never even saw that. That was, wasn't great. <laughs> I, I do think he's much better than those movies. You know what it is? Movies. Trying to make him like a leading man does not work. Yes. I don't think. Yes. I think him in this role was great as the kind of second in command and this guy, you know, working behind the scenes against Oppenheimer, right? I, I thought that really worked. Okay, so this movie also needed a little bit of warmth. And you know who was great in that? David Crumholtz as Isidore. Oh, his, like, friend, right? Yeah, his friend, who keeps telling him, Mm -hmm. like, oh, you gotta eat something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was great. He's such, like, a gentle presence in this movie, Mm -hmm. and, like, he has, like, a moral compass in the movie, and he's like, I don't want to be a part of this. Oh, he had such a great line. He was like, I don't want the legacy of three decades of physics to be this weapon. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That was such a great line. Well, and I think that's also why Alden Eric Wright really works for me too is like yeah like he's kind of like the audience surrogate right in that moment you're yeah. like this isn't yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah. this isn't right yeah. and he represents that for us yeah and the looks on his face when you know lewis strauss actually gets his comeuppance at the end and he's yeah. denied his mm-hmm. confirmation it's like a silent performance but he's like pretty smug i think that was really yeah great for great. alden Ehrenreich. Really great. that was great i do want to say it's not played for laughs but 
Albert Einstein makes me laugh, bro. He's just <laughs> fucking funny, man. Like, I know he's a real person, but he just seems like a cartoon guy to me in textbooks and stuff. He doesn't seem like a real physicist, you know? So, like, when he fucking yeah. shows up on screen, I just laugh. Even though he gets, like, the most important moment of the movie, the closing moment of the movie. Yeah. Which I think is phenomenal. That's but. pretty funny. I think it's just funny. Someone on Letterboxd was like, this movie's three hours long. One hour for each time Albert Einstein's hat blows off his head or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Which That's I think funny. is very funny. Yeah, but the ending line where it's like, I asked you if there was a chance of destroying the world with this bomb. And, you know, at the end, Oppenheimer was like, I think we did. Right? Yeah. You know, that mm-hmm. just escalation yeah, towards worse and worse weapons and more dangerous weapons. And, you know, that image of him in the plane with the nuclear fire engulfing the earth. Oh my God. It was fantastic. I think, you know, I've been more down on this movie than you have. I know you really love this movie, but I would still recommend this movie. Like I'm not saying don't go watch this movie. I think it's still a really well crafted movie and it's definitely different than what Christopher Nolan is used to doing. There is a little bit more of the talkiness in here, less spectacle, but I don't think that's a hindrance to this movie. I do think that I've already mentioned, like, the last third is my favorite part. And, like, that's just really all talking. And, like I said, like, almost like this courtroom drama. And I think it's done really well. And I really like it. I was so pleasantly surprised because taking away that sci-fi action crutch for him. I don't want to say it's a crutch because, you know, he clearly acquitted himself quite well here. But, yeah. you know, taking away just his signature genre. Could potentially not work. It could potentially not work, but he, I think, killed it here. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you agree, but I think this is his best movie. It's just full-blooded and emotional and textured. You think it's his best movie? I still think it's The Prestige because I think, for me, The Prestige is this great balance of, again, the science fiction. There's Mm. great set pieces and a great reveal, but then also this just great heart and moral quandary. I mean, I know it's just about two magicians, but like, what do you do with this power? How do these two individuals reckon with this power that they've been handed, right? Hey, um, you can draw that line to Oppenheimer, right? You know, this no, forbidden yeah, yeah, technology, whether to use it or not, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think there's a absolutely. lot of that throughout Christopher Nolan's filmography. You can say that yes. about The Dark Knight with that surveillance tech, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Tenant with a time travel, obviously. Yeah. Like I already said, and I'm pretty sure Jeff would agree. Go watch this movie and go watch it in 70 millimeter IMAX if you can, because I'm pretty sure that is the way that Nolan wants you to see this and the way you probably should see it. Yeah. Is it true that there were no trailers? No trailers. Yeah. For 70 millimeter IMAX. Yeah. So if you hate trailers, that's also great. Uh, <laughs> you don't yeah. like to sit through 25 minutes of trailers. <laughs> there are only 30 theaters that are playing this in 70 yeah. millimeter IMAX. So good luck. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Good luck. I don't know if you want to travel like two to three hours to go see it in one of those theaters, but like if you can do it because it is an experience unlike any other, everything just looks incredible in that format. You know, it really goes to, like, the sad state of affairs where there aren't that many quality projectionists around anymore. Like, a lot of the first week screenings of 70mm IMAX had issues. Oh, really? I didn't know that. The film crapping out and not changing the reels or whatever it was just projected wrong. And they're probably fixing a lot of these issues going into the second week. So maybe the second week is an even better time to go because it'll iron out the kinks of 70 millimeter, right? Yeah. The thing is, that thing is 600 pounds and 11 miles long, right? 
that that's crazy real that's fucking crazy so that's if you crazy. fuck up the projection you can't rewind it it's over you gotta like yeah re-spool and redo everything and that screening is over so you gotta go and come back another time yeah and all those screenings are sold out so yeah it's wild which is great to see it's It's just it was so great to see how many people showed up for a movie for both these movies and you know i've seen the memes too or i've seen the pictures of people oh the next showing they could buy is in two weeks right that's great i'm so happy that maybe the definitive answer of who saves cinema is now barbenheimer right (laughs) yeah sadly barbenheimer is murdering mission impossible dead reckoning you know it's taking all the imax screens from it another movie that i really love so kind of sad to see but none of it was actually shot in native IMAX, right? Like, that's the crazy thing. Yeah. My understanding is, like, none of Mission Impossible is shot in IMAX. So, like, his hissy fit about, like, I want IMAX theaters, like, uh, maybe give it to the movie that's actually meant to be shown in, like, IMAX. So, <laughs> that's, fair. that's fair. That's fair. That's <laughs> fair. But, yeah. Okay. Well, we've been running pretty long. I think, unless you have anything else, Jeff, that will conclude this week's episode. Jeff, where can people find more of your work? You can find me on my blog at strangeharbors.com, where I reviewed oppenheimer christopher nolan's oppenheimer and you can also find me on twitter and instagram what about you derek uh you can find me at the world's okayest photos on instagram but if you like this podcast easiest way to support our show is to subscribe wherever you get your podcast whether it be apple spotify or any of the other popular apps if you are listening to us on apple or spotify please do us a favor and give us a great rating it really helps get our voices out to more people yeah if you have any questions comments suggestions on our episode on Barbenheimer Part 1, Oppenheimer. Feel free to <laughs> shoot us an email at jeff at strangeharbors.com. We like getting listener mail. Sometimes we read it out on the pod. And with that, we will see you guys next week. See you guys then.